The battle to retake Iraq's second biggest city, Mosul, from the Islamic State could spell the end of ISIL's self-declared caliphate in Iraq and bring some measure of stability to the war-torn country. But does taking Mosul put the question of Iraq's future behind us? Or does it just pave the way for new conflicts in a country that's still struggling with political and sectarian tensions? And what about neighboring Syria, where the bombing of Aleppo demonstrates the conflict there is nowhere close to being done? Both of these issues will be high on the list of foreign policy challenges for the next presidential administration. I'm Adriel Bettelheim with CQ Roll Call, joined by CQ National Security Porter Ryan Lucas and by Paul Salem, Vice President of the Middle East Institute, who has just returned from the region and who organized meetings with diplomats and officials there. Uh, Paul, let's start with Iraq, where the long-awaited operation for Mosul is underway. So far, the uh, cooperation between the Iraqi security forces and the Kurdish troops appears to be holding up, and that's good news from the U.S. perspective. Uh, do you think it can hold through Mosul's expected liberation? And maybe as important or more important, who's in charge after Mosul is liberated? Well, first of all, it's a great pleasure to be here. Adriel, thank you for having me. I think uh, that the operation for Mosul is uh, a very historic potential turning point for post-Saddam Iraq. Uh, I think the operation after a number of months will be a success in terms of pushing ISIL out of Mosul, but then it will open a new chapter of very tremendous challenges uh, for Iraq and for Iraqis to rebuild, uh, first of all, the city, repatriate uh, refugees and so on, and uh, then rebuild sort of the political and uh, social fabric of Iraq itself. Uh, I think it has been a positive development that in order to retake Mosul, uh, the government in Baghdad has, to, has had to deal and organize uh, operations with the uh, Peshmerga forces of the Kurdish regional government in northern Iraq. And that's an area of cooperation on security issues, which is important. Uh, the situation after the liberation of Mosul will be extremely challenging. Uh, it will have to remain one of the highest priorities for the next U.S. president. Uh, uh, one major aspect of that is humanitarian. There may be up to one million refugees streaming out of Mosul in the coming weeks and months. There hasn't been uh, uh, adequate preparation to attend to those. Uh, and if, after the uh, operation is finished, uh, much of Mosul is likely to be uh, destroyed uh, and booby-trapped at the same time. Uh, so getting people back in, getting the city up and running is going to be an enormous uh, reconstruction and repatriation task that the U.S. Uh, has to at least play a leadership role in terms of the international and regional community to provide the resources. Uh, politically, uh, Iraq after ISIS will have to uh, re, uh, sort of repatch kind of the political situation. Uh, but there will be significant challenges. Uh, the tension between the Kurds uh, in the north and the Shiite-led government in Baghdad will be very high. Uh, disputes over oil resources uh, and management of the budget. Disputes over who controls which patches of territory in Iraq and in the plains of Nineveh and near Mosul. But probably more problematically are the tensions between the Shiite leaders in Baghdad and the Sunni communities of uh, sort of western uh, Iraq, uh, 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 and their problem is compounded by the fact that they do not have clear leadership. So it's not clear who can sit down with the leaders in Baghdad and hammer out a new agreement. Uh, 
so the the defeat of ISIS and Mosul would be a historic and tremendously positive development, but it certainly would mean uh, it does lead to a new chapter uh, of uh, challenges for Iraq, but there would be a pathway forward, and the U.S. can help in that. Uh, Ryan, what what is the United States' role right now in the Mosul operation? So first of all, I think it's worth taking a look at uh, what the U.S. presence in Iraq is. Uh, the U.S. has around 5,000 troops there at the moment. That includes trainers, advisors, special forces, uh, and they're deployed on bases around the country. One key base is in a place called Kayara, south of Mosul. Um, and there, U.S. forces are helping lay the foundations for the Iraqi security forces operation uh, against Mosul. Um, now, troops are working down to the battalion level. So what this means is that they're close enough to the action, in essence, to, to help with things like calling in airstrikes. Now, what U.S. commanders have been uh, careful about saying is that U.S. forces are advising, they're helping, they're not on the front lines. They, they say that they're one step back. And this is to draw contrast to, you know, when U.S. forces were working hand-in-hand -hand with Iraqi troops during the, 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 the U.S. occupation, um, when U.S. troops were really doing kind of the, the, the brunt of the fighting. Um, now, the U.S. is, of course, also carrying out airstrikes, targeting Islamic State positions around the country, uh, and particularly, uh, you know, uh, providing air support for Kurdish forces and uh, Iraqi forces as they advance on on Mosul. Um, now, while U.S. troops, well, excuse me, while U.S. officials say that that troops are are one step back from the front lines, that does not mean that they aren't necessarily in harm's way. That became clear on Thursday when uh, the Pentagon said that a U.S. service member had been killed by a roadside bomb near Mosul. Uh, this is the fourth U.S. service member to be killed since the operation against the Islamic State began in 2014. You've written about, and Paul just alluded to, uh, warnings, concerns about a potential humanitarian crisis as the fighting escalates. Uh, what are those concerns about specifically? They're kind of twofold. You have the issue of, well, there are one million civilians, estimated civilians, in, in Mosul right now. If you're going to have a major battle for the city, what happens to them? Are they going to flee? Is there uh, the sort of resources and camps that have been set up to support them as they as they uh, flee the fighting? The answer so far is that no. The international community is is kind of uh, scrambling to get things set up um, to support the civilians who who flee. You also have the issue of the sectarian dimension of this. Uh, particularly with Shiite militias. This is something that Amnesty International put a report out on earlier this week uh, about the previous operations that uh, Shiite militias have taken part in, particularly in Fallujah, and uh, the abuse that they have been accused of uh, towards Sunni civilians. And there have been hundreds that have gone missing, uh, accusations that they've been killed. Certainly those who have survived have borne uh, marks of torture. And so there's, there, there's a push to try to make sure that Shiite militias and, and Iraqi security forces themselves treat civilians uh, as humanely as possible and don't take out their anger at the Islamic State on civilians who are fleeing Islamic State-held territory. Paul, many of the sectarian tensions that gave rise to the Islamic State still exist in Iraq. Um, talk a little bit. Can, has the prime minister been able to improve relations with the Kurdish and the Sunni communities since taking power? Well, it's important to note that there are obviously major tensions between the sectarian and ethnic communities, and there are major tensions within each sectarian and ethnic community. And we can get to that. 
Prime Minister Abadi, I would say, has tried uh, to improve relations with those two other communities, certainly uh, much more uh, than you know, Prime Minister Maliki before him, who exacerbated those tensions. Uh, he has not been able to make much, uh, much significant headway. Uh, the differences with the Kurdish region in the north have to do largely with, uh, with oil issues, and the oil dispute more or less continues. Uh, and uh, we are still in a period where, because of low oil prices, Baghdad is not even able to cover sort of its own budget needs, let alone, uh, you know, s provide sufficient financial support for the north. Uh, so t uh, the relationships have been very bad. But that's why I mentioned that this cooperation, at least to fight ISIS, is an opening. It's, it's proof that cooperation can work. Uh, it's also proof that U.S. Leadership might be a strong word, but, you know, some kind of mediation and leadership uh, can help them move forward. The uh, tensions between the Shiite and Sunni communities is very high. The challenge there, as I mentioned earlier, is there isn't a clear Sunni leadership. There are Sunni politicians in the central, in parliament and in the government in Baghdad with Prime Minister Abadi. However, they are uh, far away from the street, from the communities in western Iraq. They don't really speak for them. Uh, there are some uh, Sunni leaders who've been in the Gulf countries or Turkey since ISIS moved in, but they've also, you know, been away for a, a, a long while. The Sunni community in general has gone through various, I would say, soul-searching phases in the sense that when the U.S. toppled the Saddam-led government, uh, I think the Sunni community... Uh, was still in, you know, there's five stages of grief, you know, mm -hmm. versus shock, then denial, and so on. They were, in a sense, in denial that they've really lost uh, centuries of domination of Baghdad and sort of Iraq, Iraq loosely described, and that Baghdad is now a Shiite-led, at least, uh, Shiite-majority government. Uh, uh, part of that was expressed in the insurgency. Part of it was the soft response to the ISIS approach that, you know, they didn't like Maliki, so why not try ISIS? They are now in a post-ISIS phase. They realize ISIS was the biggest disaster for them uh, and certainly didn't you know, give, get, get them anything and that they're going to have to find a way to live with the Shiites and the, and the government in Baghdad. But uh, that's important, but there isn't the political structure yet to get that done. I, I would recommend that perhaps in the next administration the U.S. work with our Sunni partners in the region, Turkey and the Gulf states, to help build up kind of an Iraqi Sunni leadership that can sit down effectively on the table with uh, Shiite and Kurdish leaders and make this constitution, which is a reasonable constitution, make it work. Uh, that can happen in Iraq. I've actually, I've, I've got a, a question for Paul. From the people that you've spoken with in the region, do you have a sense of one, whether the U.S. has the political clout at this point to try to, one, kind of meld these forces together in Mosul post-liberation. Um, and does that provide kind of a, a, a foundation for you know, political reconciliation on a national level? Uh, I wouldn't say that the U.S. has the clout to make it happen in a way sort of unilaterally or top-down. The U.S. has influence, has, uh, you know, diplomatic and political and military capacities to play a role. Uh, uh, but it's not, it's not, you know, in a position to dictate anything. I mean, even take the situation uh, in Syria, the Turks just launched air attacks 
on our Kurdish allies in northern Syria. And they did that as a clear rebuke and warning to the U.S. that your Kurdish allies in northern Syria, and maybe we'll get to that, whom you are preparing to attack ISIS's capital in Syria, the city of Raqqa, we consider them terrorists and we will not accept that they be the lead operation. So there's obviously major American-Turkish differences. Mm -hmm. So all I'm saying is that as the U.S. is playing a role and a useful one uh, in the liberation of Mosul alongside major players like the Iraqi government, like the Peshmerga themselves, like the Turks, behind the scenes Iran, obviously, uh, it can play a role. It can also do that uh, in post-ISIS Iraq, but it has to be aware of its limitations and the few cards that it has to play. Uh, on the topic of Syria, a question for both of you. H how do you bring stability to Iraq as long as the war in Syria is grinding on? C can the two really be separated? My quick, quick answer is yes. Uh, Lebanon, a very small and weak country, which is right next door to Syria, has managed to remain stable. Jordan has managed to remain stable. Turkey, obviously, is stable. All the countries are impacted, but what happened in Iraq was really a breakdown of Iraqi politics in 2000, after the Americans left, with Maliki really sidelining the Sunnis and driving them sort of to the wall. And then they effectively, well, there was one year of protests before even ISIS thought of pivoting to, uh, pivoting to Iraq. So, yes, I do think that if the Iraqis push ISIS out of Mosul. Now, ISIS will be present as an insurgency. Iraq's a big country. It'll be here and there. There will be car bombs. But uh, if they liberate Mosul and if they can get the basic power sharing and economic sharing deals done, uh, then Iraq can uh, remain stable even while, unfortunately, you know, fires rage on in Syria. So, yes, it can be done, uh, but it's, a, it's mainly an Iraqi challenge and an Iraqi problem. I agree with, with the vast majority of that. I, I, I do think that, as Paul noted, that there will continue to be an insurgency uh, in Iraq. And I think that you, you know, Syria will provide a base, an operational base for um, the Islamic State to use to go back and forth. It's not like you can suddenly seal that border. Uh, last question. Much has been made of the U.S.-Russian diplomatic efforts to reach some sort of an agreement to stem the violence in Syria. Uh, but there's more actors, as you've said, on, on the stage. Is, is there agreement among the various outside players, the U.S., Russia, Saudi, Iran, Turkey, on any aspect of Syria? Uh, the short answer is no. Uh, the U.S. and Russia have very different goals in Syria. Uh, Russia is backing uh, this, what it considers the state, which is the Assad regime and its various allies. From the beginning, it's gone after Syria's armed op opponents, opposition, or the armed opposition of the, the Assad state, which is in vast majority has nothing to do with ISIS or Jabhat al-Nusra. Uh, that is part of uh, President Putin and perhaps with the Chinese perspective that maintaining the unchallenged principle of state sovereignty uh, and rejecting all concepts of sort of popular revolution or armed rebellion as anything legitimate in the international order uh, is very important to Putin and very important to China. Uh, the second objective of Russia is to defeat uh, jihadists and sort of and terrorists because that is a security concern for Russia. So on the ground in Syria, that means that Russia will continue to back the Assad regime. Uh, in trying to secure more and more territory for the Assad regime. Uh, 
at the same time, Russia, uh, in this sort of long-term strategy, occasionally welcomes lulls, ceasefires, because, you know, wars take time and you need to regroup and so on. Uh, and as long as the U.S. and its allies do not create a counterbalance to stop that process, Russia, Iran, and the regime will continue to move forward month after month, year after year, with all the consequences in terms of refugees and pushing more people towards ISIS and radicals. What's been missing is that the U.S. has talked a lot but has really put no roadblocks in the way of this, this strategy, which has made the situation far, far worse. Secretary Clinton again uh, mentioned that if she became president, she would have a more robust approach, first of all, towards uh, providing safe zones for refugees so they don't have to go elsewhere, but also putting more pressure on Assad, Iran, and the Russians so that they do accept a real cessation of hostilities sometime in 2017. And part of that pressure is, as she has mentioned in the, in the debate, uh, is a no-fly zone. Um, and the question is whether that's a feasible possibility at this point with, you know, the Russians have introduced advanced uh, air defenses at this point um, and essentially told the U.S., well, you know, if you really wanted to push comes to shove, we've got our S-400s, S-300s, their, their uh, air defense systems there. Um, and I don't know, we didn't get an answer at the debate whether Clinton would be willing to shoot down Russian planes, shoot down Syrian mm -hmm. planes in order to, infor, uh, to enforce uh, the no-fly zone that she's proposing. I don't know if you have a sense on how actors in the Middle East would react to that. Well, she did say that it is indeed a very complicated uh, issue and mm -hmm. one that would be challenging. But uh, she did say that she would favor a no-fly zone and a safe zone. Already the U.S. and Russia have a coordination mechanism in northern Syria to make a deconfliction mechanisms to make sure that their planes don't shoot at each other or run into mm -hmm. each other. They're both, you know, launching airstrikes in northern Syria. Uh, Turkey and Russia had a run-in, uh, you know, a year ago where Turkey shot down a Russian plane. Mm -hmm. And now Turkey and Russia also have kind of a deconfliction process. So I do think it is uh, feasible and possible for a President Clinton or any president for that matter uh, to simply uh, indicate that they're going to be much more serious about the situation in northern Syria, put more assets, uh, and a bit of pushback and brinkmanship with the required diplomacy uh, and deconfliction. Already in northern Syria, in the area of Jarablus uh, and, and bits of northern Syria, uh, the Russian Air Force and the Syrian Air Force is not going there. And that's kind of a quiet sort of understanding with the Turks. Where the Turkish op operation. The Turkish, uh, yeah. yeah. The Russians don't want to get into a shooting war at all with the Americans. Uh, they, you know, they do want to try to push back American influence wherever they can, but they also want to negotiate and they also want to make deals with the Americans. So I think uh, Secretary Clinton is right that there is a way between abject, you know, defeatism, say, well, you know, they have missiles there, there's nothing we can do, or between, you know, playing playing international politics, but doing so wisely and carefully. Uh, and Russia and the U.S. have extensive diplomatic contacts. And really, it's not the, you know, it won't be the first time that they try to figure something out. Mm -hmm. But I think Putin correctly figured out that President Obama will do nothing in Syria. So why not take advantage of that? And he's, he's doing as much as he can in the weeks remaining before the elections, before he has to face, probably, President Clinton. 
who will be tougher. So he's trying to get all <laughs> cards he can acquire in his hand before he has to sit down on that table come January or February 2017. Paul Solom, Vice President for Policy and Research at the Middle East Institute, CQ National Security Reporter Ryan Lucas on the battle to retake Iraq's second biggest city, Mosul, and the fight in nearby Syria. I'm Adriel Bettelheim. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, and you can find all of our podcasts at rollcall.com forward slash podcasts.